This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about allergies and how many Canadians suffer from them. A new study finds that between two and a half and three point one million of us have these issues. And we have some very expert people here. So I'm going to get right to the phones. People who have questions and comments. Shirley in Burlington. Hello, Shirley. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. Okay. My dilemma is I have a granddaughter that's allergic to pistachios and cashews. And it is so frustrating trying to find food that she can eat because so many packages that got on it may contain, contain tree nuts, even to ice cream. The only ice cream she can eat is Chapman's. And I bought a premium Chapman's and I didn't think to look at the package. Even that says may contain tree nuts, but the regular Chapman's ice cream doesn't. It says it doesn't contain tree nuts. Uh, And that's my dilemma. Okay. Uh, Jennifer, do you have uh, some advice for Shirley? Well, I think what what Shirley is telling us is what we hear from a lot of consumers because the whole thing around may contain is very problematic. Um, it's problematic in, in in terms of what does it actually mean. Now, in the case of Chapman's, they do have um, they have got one facility that is is peanut free and tree nut free, and um, but the use of may contain in Canada is it's it's a guidance. Okay, it's not the, there's not um, clear regulation other than it has to be truthful and not misleading. And the challenge is, is, is that we have seen a proliferation of may contain statements. And what's happening with consumers, if you have some consumers who are saying, okay, I actually now have a problem because I don't have a, I've, I've got a restricted food choice. And you have in other cases, consumers making their own risk decision on whether that's a meaningful statement. So they're saying, well, I don't know about that may contain. I think that might be a legal liability. And so they'll consume it and they consume it once. And then they realize, well, maybe that's not a problem. So the whole area of may contain needs to be addressed. Um, it's actually some work that we're doing right now with Laval University and food manufacturers to come up with guidelines and a risk-based approach uh, that's consistent throughout the industry for the application of may contain so that it becomes meaningful, okay? So, you know, there's two things that we want to have happen there is that by using a risk assessment approach to be able to say, does is this may contain merited? We're hoping that some of the may contains that are out there right now will come off packages, okay? And that when they are there, that they actually do represent a, um, a risk to consumers. So we're trying to make may contain meaningful. I wish I had a better answer for Shirley to say, well, here's the plan, but we, our organization, along with others, are working to try and bring more meaning to that statement so that it's clear and it does actually represent uh, risk. Uh, thanks, Shirley, for your call. Sylvan, do you have anything to say about that from the point of view of the industry? No, I agree. Uh, I agree with Jennifer. I think some clarity is uh, is is necessary because right now it's just a, a blanket statement. And uh, as Jennifer said, nobody really knows what it actually means. And we're about 10 days away from, from Halloween. And and Halloween is uh, is is certainly a a very stressful time time for for parents and and children who are allergic to to say peanuts and, and different uh, different ingredients. So uh, the only thing we that the parents have is is, is these blanket statements. And sometimes actually uh, that that notice is actually on a larger package. And as soon as you open it up to distribute. Uh, candies, uh, that label may contain whatever is not mentioned on, on smaller units. And that's something that, that a lot of people are concerned about. Yeah, um, and I would imagine it's hard for the kids to control themselves on Halloween. Um, let's take a call from Hope and Coburg. Hello, Hope. Good morning, or afternoon. Um, I have two curious reactions. When I have toast and honey, which I do every morning, 
I go into a sneezing fit, and when I have my banana later in the day, I cough up phlegm from my lungs. So why are there different reactions? And these have not killed me yet, and I still go for them. Uh, Dr. Kim, do you want to take that? Sure. So, so Hope, first of all, um, as we've discussed, I um, would definitely recommend um, seeing your physician and maybe uh, getting a referral to an allergist to confirm um, whether or not you're really allergic to those foods. But it's a great question of why people have different symptoms with different foods, you know, even with the same person. And we actually don't know why, um, but it's certainly true that um, for some people, when they eat peanut, they may have symptoms. And if they're allergic to cashew, they may have different symptoms. And, and sometimes the, the, the presentations can be quite varied where, you know, the symptoms can be quite life-threatening with one food and relatively mild with another. Um, and, uh, and, and we really don't know why that happens. Um, to some extent, it may depend on how allergic you are to that food. So, for example, if you have a lot of antibodies against cashew, um, and fewer with, with, um, with peanut, then you are more likely to have a more severe reaction to the cashew. And that may be happening with you with the honey and banana. Um, and, um, and, and again, it's important to confirm uh, whether or not um, there are real allergies or, or some other um, um, reason for reacting to those foods. Thanks very much for that, Helen. Uh- I have a question. Is it possible to develop allergies as you're getting older? Um, you know, I know I have some things that I think I'm on the verge of being allergic and, and get kind of a, a red itch on the inside of uh, a wrist. Is that is that a symptom? So, so it, it can be a symptom. And um, we often, um, you know, we believe that uh, that most people present with allergies during childhood, uh, and that, that's true. Um, but we often see adults, um, sometimes at 40 or 50 uh, years of age, developing food allergy, but it's not common. Uh, typically, uh, patients are younger when they develop symptoms, um, but, um, but everybody's different. And if you have symptoms that are suggestive of, of anaphylaxis that Jennifer went through, um, then, uh, then you should be assessed and tested to see if you're really allergic to the food. Okay, let's take a call from Helen in St. Mary's. Hi, Helen. How are you, Libby? Fine. You're a first-time caller? I am. There you go. You got the bell. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I just wanted to mention that nothing has changed for me uh, during the pandemic uh, when it comes to ordering in or eating out. I have celiac disease, so uh, I have to be hypervigilant at all times. It doesn't matter if it's in the grocery store, I'm reading labels, or if I'm ordering food uh, for dining in. Or at home, so um, uh, and and my choices actually are quite limited. You know, I can eat salads all the time. That's uh, what restaurants usually say to me when I ask for a gluten-free menu. Oh, you know, here's the salad menu. But you know what? I would enjoy a little bit of choice and be able to have French fries. But uh, fries are uh, put in a fryer with everything else that perhaps has a coating on it or breading. So. Um, for me, it's uh, the same old, same old. Well, thanks for that, Helen, and uh, good luck with it. And and that was when gluten-free was a big craze, and uh, there were all kinds of people saying they can't tolerate gluten, as opposed to people who are diagnosed with celiac disease. Uh, Dr. Kim? Yes, so again, celiac disease is not uh, anaphylaxis, but it's a, an immune response to gluten. And you can get quite significant symptoms with it if you have uh, celiac disease. But you're right, Libby, is that, again, with celiac disease, um, it's a specific diagnosis, and um, and physicians can make that diagnosis uh, typically with most patients. Um, But then you get into the gray zone, um, as you're alluding to, where um, a number of people believe they're sensitive to gluten, but it's not. um, we don't have the ability to confirm it. Um, but with true celiac disease, uh, the testing is actually quite good as well. Hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, there's definitely a difference. I mean, I find that sometimes uh, certain diets uh, kind of get fad proportions, if you know what I mean. And then people may they they decide, okay, this is the thing. But uh, I, I can I, if I can add something here for 
mean, because we we have we have talked about the celiac disease for for a while now, and people are concerned and may feel that they are intolerant or allergic. It really has pushed the food industry to innovate and develop really good gluten-free products. Uh, if you remember 10 years ago, most gluten-free products were not edible at all. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and now, uh, whether or not you are intolerant or whether or not you are allergic, uh, people who are concerned do have access to better food now because we're talking about it. And we're also starting to see uh, pretty good and edible vegan products. I mean, we didn't have that exactly. 10 years ago either. Yep, absolutely. Uh, is there an increase, Dr. Kim, in, in people who have celiac disease, or do you see kind of a, a steady number? Celiac, I'm actually not an expert on. Um, I, I don't know if the, what the numbers actually are in Canada with, uh, with celiac disease, uh, but there is certainly a perception that it's becoming more common, but, but I actually don't know the numbers. Okay, let's take a call from Louise in Toronto. Hello, Louise. Hello, Libby. Great show. I would like to say that sometimes with allergies, when people become adults, when they were young, they were not always exposed to everything that they were allergic to. So suddenly, as an adult, they become allergic, but they were probably always allergic to that thing, but were never exposed at a young age. For instance, having a rash on the inner part of your wrist could be possibly resulting from the wrist strap on the watch, the metal being allergic to the metal. Okay, Louise, thanks for that. Um, uh, Yeah, I remember a really interesting study that giving babies like small bits of peanuts actually prevented a peanut allergy. Um, What do we know about that? You want me to take that one? Sure. The, so so uh, that is actually one of the greatest advances we've had in food allergy is that we now believe, uh, based on good randomized controlled studies, very good science, that introducing allergenic foods like peanut, milk, um, early in life, uh, between even the ages of four and six months, uh, will prevent allergy in, in many of us. So we actually encourage that now. Mm. It's interesting. Um, we are almost out of time, so I'm going to go around the table to see what you would like to leave us with, especially, uh, as you say, with Halloween coming up. Uh, let's start with Jennifer Gertz. Yeah, when it comes to Halloween, I mean, I think this is a holiday that every kid totally anticipates and is excited about. And so I guess there's a message to the community to think about how do I make sure that I've got uh, treats that are properly labeled and that I show inclusion, and people can take a look at our Shine a Light campaign uh, on our website uh, for how you can think about or there's tips for Halloween. The other thing I'd like to mention, Libby, is there's also a really great tool out there called allergycheck.ca, and it was done with BC Children's as well as the University of British Columbia. And for people that are confused, if I have an intolerance or an allergy, this is a great tool that walks you through what symptoms are you experiencing. And it takes you to a decision on should I go see an allergist or not. So I'd really encourage people who are confused between that intolerance and allergy a question to go to that site. Uh, Dr. Kim? Yeah, I think it's, it's great. I think information and research is important. And, and I would like to thank uh, Jennifer and Food Allergy Canada and Dr. Charlebois and, and the prevalence research that, that, that Eddie's done. Uh, I think uh, the, the more information we have, the better. And, and I think we are getting better. We have started a national food action plan, and we're trying to, um, to encourage um, the governments to be involved with that. And, and I think that the more um, information, again, I think it will be better for all of us. Dr. Charlevoix, last 15 seconds to you. Very quickly, the food market is very different than before the pandemic. A lot of people are ordering food at home. Just be careful when you receive your food. Ask questions as much as possible about uh, the content of the food you just delivered. Okay, thank you so much, Jennifer Gertz, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, and Dr. Harold Kim. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Do you have any food allergies? According to a report by Dalhousie University's Agri-Food Analytics Lab, they are on the rise. And between two and a half and 3.1 million of us are claiming to have at least one food allergy. So what exactly is the cause behind this increase? And more importantly, are we confusing food allergies with intolerance to certain foods? And did you get the information that you have an allergy from a doctor or did you self-diagnose? We want to hear the numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We have a panel of food and allergy experts. Let's bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, Dr. Harold Kim, Associate Professor and Chair and Chief of the the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy at Western University, and Jennifer Gertz, Executive Director of Food Allergy Canada. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much. Let us start with Sylvain. And uh, how big an increase did you find in your work here? Well, I mean, we. This is the first time we actually survey Canadians on this topic, uh, and I know that Food uh, Food Allergy Canada has historical data on this issue. But uh, we were able to estimate that uh, that anywhere between 2.5 to 3.1 million Canadians actually suffer from a food allergy, and for food intolerances, uh, it's over seven million. And so, you just need one person in an household to see many people being affected by by food allergies or intolerances. So it, it is really something that is uh, becoming a problem for a growing number of families uh, in Canada. Dr. Kim, what's the difference between an intolerance and an allergy? So an allergy is when a patient has a specific um, reaction to a food where your body overreacts to the food uh, with an antibody called IgE. And that type of reaction is the one where you associate with anaphylaxis, so so people having severe reactions, for example, to peanut or to milk. Um, intolerance is a bit more of a vague term, and and to, to be honest, there's there's no real definition uh, for that. Um, it, it's often um, non-specific symptoms um, that are impossible to um, diagnose or confirm uh, with medical testing. Um, there are some specific types of intolerances, for example, like lactose intolerance, where your body cannot um, digest milk sugar properly, so you have uh, stomach and, and bowel symptoms. Um, but often the intolerance term is, is used relatively loosely and, and without any firm uh, you know, definition or diagnosis for that. Uh, Jennifer Gertz, uh, in terms of the type of the, you know, anaphylactic shock, which is uh, life-threatening, are there kind of milder versions of those reactions? Well, there, anaphylaxis covers, uh, um, is, is kind of the definition of the most, the most severe allergic reaction. And, and frankly, Dr. Kim could give you uh, the, the clinical de- definition of anaphylaxis. But certainly it involves more than one body system. It's rapid on, in onset and, you know, it releases histamine in the system as well as other things that triggers things like skin symptoms, respiratory symptoms, gastrointestinal and cardiovascular. It doesn't have to include all of those things. It, it can include uh, some of those things. But the most severe, like a drop in blood pressure, is something that is considered a severe type of anaphylaxis. The terminology that exists out there today, though, is called anaphylaxis, and it's not broadly understood, and and there's not really good classifications of degrees of anaphylaxis. Um, Sylvain, uh, you say that 36.2% of the people in your survey were were self-diagnosed. Uh, were you surprised by that, and did, did you get any detail on how they decided they had allergies? Uh well, surprise, I honestly, we didn't have any expectation uh, since it was our first uh, survey on, on this topic. Uh, however, we did notice a difference between uh, between allergies and intolerances uh, for, for reasons that uh, Dr. Kim has mentioned. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, symptoms are much more severe with, with allergies and people are concerned and they do consult with, uh, with experts. 
Um, but I must say, I mean, often uh, when we look at food recalls, for example, uh, food recalls are uh, a very large program in Canada, and 35% of food recalls in Canada are linked to uh, allergens or, or the fact that allergens may not be um, uh, properly labeled on food products. And, and, and that's, a, that's a growing issue for sure. And, and it probably uh, prompts people to think that perhaps there's something wrong with a food product and then they'll call the company or they'll go back to their grocery stores. And, and often uh, what we find uh, is that grocers or the food industry um, doesn't necessarily uh, deal with these matters all that well. I mean, there's not a whole lot of information shared within the food industry uh, in a proactive matter when it comes to allergies. Uh, Jennifer Gertz, uh, I, I know that it, it's, it's a problem. And um, now when more people are, say, ordering food in, uh, has it increased? I mean, is, is it a bigger problem if you're ordering food in or you're ordering your groceries in without having a good look at the packaging beforehand? And is the packaging adequate? Yeah, you know, that's an, an excellent point because I think, you know, so people with a, a food allergy, an IgE-mediated food allergy that Dr. Kim references, you know, this, the management strategy is avoidance. That's, that's the predominant way that people would manage this condition. And so what they rely on is access to accurate ingredient information. And while there's been some improvements, um, through kind of the regulatory paths around how to properly label allergens, that's on the actual physical package, okay? When COVID hit, what we took a look at is a lot more people were procuring food online. So I'm ordering my groceries online. I might be ordering through more food service establishments and through third-party delivery services. And the ingredient information on those service, those platforms haven't proven to be accurate reflections of what the actual product is. Okay. And so that is, you know, when we think about moving forward, yes, people can shift back to those practices of going into the store and looking at the physical package or being in a restaurant and being able to ask a, a restaurant staff about the ingredients in a product. But going forward, we can't expect that we're going to go all the way back. This is here to stay this idea of, of ordering through online platforms. And so there's a real call to action to go, how do we create access to ingredient information on those platforms? Because, you know, while this is essential for people with food allergy, I want to go back to the food intolerance. People who have declared a food intolerance still want to avoid those things that are making them feel unwell. Okay, it's just that it's essential and it's a real food safety issue for people with food allergy. Okay. Um, Dr. Kim, I wanted to ask, I mean, I know a lot of people who say they're allergic to this or they're allergic to that, and it's, you know, based on who knows what. So um, what's your experience of that? So we do see a number of those patients that, that have um, suspected food intolerances, and uh, we can often rule out allergy with them. Um, but it is a really important point that... Um, with us as allergists, um, I wouldn't say that it's, it's not always black and white, but it is fairly easy for us to uh, rule out food allergy. Um, we assess the patient, and then we do skin testing. And if those skin tests correlate with what's happened with the patient before, we have a, a pretty firm diagnosis. And then if there's any question, uh, we would um, often do blood testing for specific um, IgE antibodies to the food. And then the best test or the gold standard test for confirming or ruling out food allergy is what we call an oral food challenge. And that's where we would actually give the patient uh, the food that they suspect as an allergen if we think the risk is low enough. And, uh, and with that, if they are able to eat it, then we've ruled out an allergy. If they have a reaction, then we've uh, ruled in an allergy. Um, and, uh, and many of us do that. Um, one of the problems... Um, with, with the allergy diagnostic issue is that there's about 200 allergists across the country. So sometimes uh, timely access um, to our um, services is, is not there. And another important point is, is many of these oral challenges should be done in a hospital setting where, where um, uh, there's more backup if, if, uh, if a patient actually has a reaction. 
And many of us do not have access to um, hospitals to perform these challenges. Um, it has been getting better, um, but uh, there are those drawbacks. But it is pretty straightforward for us to rule out or rule in a food allergy, actually. Okay. Uh, we've got to take another break. Let me give the numbers out again. And uh Audience, we want to hear from you. Do you have a food allergy or does anyone in your household, in your family have one? How does that change how you put together the the food, how you order it, how you buy it? Uh, do you think things are adequately marked? And how do you know you have an allergy as opposed to maybe an intolerance or Maybe you just don't like something. Um, so uh, more of us are having these problems. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, medical authorities are worried that we may see a big resurgence of the seasonal flu this year. The province has unveiled its biggest flu campaign ever. Ontario purchased 7.6 million flu shot doses, which is over a million more than last year, at a price tag of $90 million. Now, if you're over 65, under four, pregnant or immunocompromised, you can get your shot now. If not, you have to wait until November. The good news is this year you can get the high-dose shot for Zoomers in pharmacies. But what's the supply situation? In previous years, there were problems. So I'd like to hear from you with all of your questions. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-740. For 740. And now I'd like to uh, welcome two uh, of our frequent contributors, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a Toronto-based family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, and John Papasturgio, pharmacist at Shoppers Drug Mart. Hi, great talking to you both. Thanks for having me back, Libby. Nice to be here. Okay, let us begin with uh, Iris, with Dr. Gorfinkel. So how uh, how many high-dose did you order for your practice? How many did you get, and what do you make of it? So we ordered 300 doses. That's for two doctors. We received one-third of that, just over 100 doses. Uh-huh. And for the most part, they were spoken for. Uh, we're having, you know, people are calling us. They were well in advance of our having received it. And of course, the high dose, everybody's excited because, you know, the research has shown, this is from 2014, to be fair, that it does give a 24% better efficacy. Like, it's a little more effective. And there was a 2013, like, this is getting kind of ancient, don't you think? Study published in The Lancet showing that it also can reduce the risk of hospitalization from influenza. That's why the rush for individuals over 65, who who actually constitute more than half of the hospitalizations historically from influenza. John, what about you? Um, uh, what's your supply of high dose like? Yeah, we're in good supply right now, Libby. And I think the way a vaccine was distributed to community pharmacies was your kind of opening order was half of what you uh, uh, did uh, in the entire flu season last year. So we've got quite a bit of vaccine right now, both high-dose, uh, quadrivalent, uh, trivalent with adjuvant. So we're, we're in, we're in a, a really good supply. I've seen kind of a steady stream of traffic for high-risk seniors, you know, with comorbidities. But I thought, honestly, it would be even busier. So I think... Uh, I think the media is getting behind it right now, so I think there's still a, a, an opportunity for awareness out there. Well, it's 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 pr- still pretty early. I mean, yeah. uh, I I know that uh, I'm usually a flu shot early bird, but it's usually sort of closer to Halloween. And- yeah, it is. It is early, and I think uh, uh, yesterday I know the health minister spoke at one of our stores and kind of announced the opening of the flu campaign for November first. I think once November first comes around. Uh, We'll start seeing uh, bigger lineups for vaccine, but you know if we could get the message out now, if you're high risk, you have comorbidities, things like asthma, COPD, some of these other uh, uh, you know uh, chronic diseases, 
get in there now because it's actually it's not too bad right now. We're able to, I think, uh, get those high-risk patients done first. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, so you got half the number. Was that for the high dose as well, half of what you had last yeah. year? Yeah, it was half of kind of everything. And uh, we're able to order. We're self-distributing this year. So we're able to order, uh, you know, more vaccine after the 28th uh, of October. So that doesn't say much. I'm not sure what they'll, you know, have in stock at that point. But for now, I could say with confidence, we're in pretty good shape. Uh, Iris, uh, what percentage, how many, how many older patients do you have in your practice? Oh, older patients probably constitute one out of every six or seven patients. What I what concerns me is that people don't realize it takes two weeks for the flu shot to do anything, to actually have an efficacy. You know, it's kind of like the COVID shot. You don't just get it and then you're instantly fixed. You actually have to wait two weeks for the body to build a good immune response to it. You know, and we know that as people get older, the immune response does slow down. So my feeling is stay ahead of the curve. This year is not last year. Last year we got lucky. For every 1,000 cases we normally saw, we saw like one case. The numbers were way down, but society was also completely closed at that time. And now it's, it's totally different. Kids are back at school. Businesses are open. People are starting to travel again. This is not at all the same thing. Plus, we've got Delta. Well, we've got Delta, and also we've learned certain things. I remember how uh, uh, paranoid we were about touching any surfaces uh, that we know that that's not the way it's uh, spread. So I think people are probably, you know, still careful, but not as careful as they were last year, John. Well, definitely. Yeah, I, I, you know, I I find there is some fatigue out there for sure, and I'm even uh, seeing it in the stores. I think last year we were much, much more careful Patients were more diligent, uh, uh, particularly our seniors' population. I see some of that starting uh, to relax. So I, I won't be surprised if we see kind of a resurgence of, of flu this year. And, that, and again, that's why the messaging is so important. Let's uh, take our first call from Henry in Toronto. Hello, Henry. Yes, good morning. Good afternoon. Oh, sorry, good afternoon. <laughs> Correct. Uh, yes, I just wanted to say about the experience I had. I uh, went to Shoppers Drug Mart early this morning to mail a letter, and I saw they had the signed flu shots available. So I inquired with the pharmacist who was by himself, and he said, yes, it's available. And I said, is it by appointment? He says, yes, mostly. And as it turned out, after a minute or so, he said, well, I'm not busy. I'll uh, give you your shot right now if you want. And I said, yes, and I appreciate it. I filled out a form and had the shot, and it's all finished. Okay. Henry, good for you. You're an early bird. Yes, early bird gets the worm and the needle. And without a lineup. And no, that is, that is correct. That, that uh, caller makes, makes a very good point. So there are a few differences this year. We, You know, historically, we've taken walk-ins, uh, uh, for flu, and we, we're still doing that with a caveat. It does get pretty busy, especially because we're still administering quite a few COVID vaccines. So we're, I think after November 1st in particular, we're encouraging patients to use our scheduler, uh, go in and make an appointment, and you'll see, you'll see that go live, uh, after uh, November 1st. Uh, it, it helps us with, it helps control the number of, uh, people in the store as well, and we, we want to be conscious of that. Uh, uh, so I think, uh, uh, although there may be opportunities for walk-in, I think if you want to be uh, certain after November 1st, try to use the scheduler to make an appointment. Uh, Dr. Gorfinkel, what can you tell us about what is expected from this year's flu strain? So what we know is that there has been an upsurge in cases in India already. You know, So we look to the north to predict what's going to happen. And there's a number of reasons why this year may be a rougher year. Not only is it just that businesses are open, that schools are back in session, but people's guard is down. And that's a serious concern. You know, I think we're seeing fewer masks. I'm seeing people walking around supermarkets with their mask under their nose. I'm seeing a lessening of concern. There's pandemic fatigue. 
And this is going to play a role. And on top of it, many health authorities have expressed concern that because we did not see a lot of influenza last year, kids are actually going to be more at risk. They haven't built up the immunity. They may be asymptomatic and yet still spreading the disease. So, no, influenza does not spread via groceries or surfaces. That's not generally how it spreads. If you touch an infected surface and then touch your nose, I suppose it could go that way. But it's unlikely. The main way is respiratory droplets. COVID-19 does not spread through surfaces either. But it's that letting down of the guard. It's that reduction in immunity from not having experienced the disease last year that puts people at higher risk. We are on guard for a hard flu season this year. We're on guard for variants. Countries that have put down their guard too easily, and never mind countries. What am I looking to other countries for? Let's talk about other provinces. Alberta, right? You put down the guard and what happens? Boom. Well, that's that's, that's COVID. And uh, John, do we know what kind of a flu strain? Usually with each year, um, we, we do hear about what's actually uh, protective in the vaccine. Is it is it, uh, you know, from a bird flu or from a different one? Yeah, I think I think it's it's uh, more so that kind of the number of strains that are covered in the vaccine. So what you're getting uh, generally is a quadrivalent vaccine, which will have uh, three strains of uh, influenza A and then a strain of influenza B included. We do also have available uh, for seniors uh, a trivalent vaccine that has the strains most likely to you know, cause infection in seniors, and it's adjuvanted, so it's got something that helps kind of uh, trigger the immune system to recognize the virus a little bit better. So that's kind of the way I try to explain it to patients, but generally, to Iris's point, they try to predict which strains will be circulating based on what's going on in the other side of the world. And and so, uh, which strains? Uh, what's being predicted? Yeah, this year we have the H1N1, H through H3N2, and then there's something called the Yamagata lineage and the Victoria lineage. Those are the main ones in the strains. The, the main strains that we have in the influenza vaccination this year. So we've seen some of these before and, and influenza shots. But the key here is, is that because the numbers were so low last year, it's hard to be certain of the vaccine efficacy of this year, right? So consider that for every thousand cases we normally have, last year there was only one just a little over one. So it was a fraction of a fraction of the number of cases we usually see were actually very few. So we're basing our knowledge not on huge numbers, but we are making the best guess we can. Vaccine efficacy for influenza vaccine in any given year sits at around 50%. 60% is a good year, 40% is a little less, but, but that's the kind of numbers we're dealing with. And just as a friendly reminder, it, it, it just gives you a tremendously great appreciation for how lucky, how fortunate we are that the COVID-19 vaccines were well over 90% effective. And even months later, they're over 90% effective in reducing hospitalizations and reducing deaths. This, should, this can't be taken for granted. You look at our experience with influenza vaccine. Makes you wonder, maybe the messenger RNA technology could be applied to this with better results. Who knows? That's uh, that's interesting. I'd like to give the numbers out again, people. So we're talking about this year's flu campaign. And uh, just, I guess, as a warning, medical authorities are expecting a bad flu year, a resurgence of the flu <clears throat> Last year, we had almost no flu, but we were in hard lockdown at the time, and everybody was, like, so careful, uh, you know, which would be, it's a good message uh, saying if you do all that stuff diligently, it will be somewhat protective. But the shots are in, and if you are over 65, under 4, pregnant or immunocompromised, you can get your shot right away. If not, you got to wait until November. Uh, and uh, if you have questions, last year also and in other years, there have been issues with the supply of the high dose for people over 65. It looks like we are in better shape this year. And, uh, you know, this was just unveiled yesterday. So uh, if you have questions or if you have a comment, please give us a shout. 
416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I want to talk a bit, a bit about, um, you know, the COVID versus the seasonal flu. So I've seen guidance that it's fine to have the two of those, even getting them at the same time. And, uh, but having the COVID shot isn't going to protect you against the seasonal flu. Uh, John, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, that's a great question, Lee, because uh, kind of earlier on in the pandemic, we were, uh, you know, we, we spread the message that if you had a COVID shot, generally you have to wait two weeks before you can receive any other vaccine. And the guidance on that changed uh, recently, and we're actually able to co-administer both COVID and flu, and COVID actually with many other vaccines as well. And I've actually started to do that in practice here. I'll tell you, there's still many, many patients that uh, have had one uh, shot of COVID, but have not come in for their second, and we're trying to really identify those, be proactive, and when they're in here, they're in here getting flu shots, and they haven't gotten that second dose of the COVID vaccine, we're encouraging them uh, to do them both and, and get them completely vaccinated. So uh, I think it's a good news story. It takes some time and hopefully we can uh, improve the overall vaccination rates. Yeah, and I'm wondering, I think there are probably people out there who think their COVID shots are, will protect them against the flu virus. It's interesting. There was a study that was published suggesting that individuals who receive the flu shot may have a reduction in COVID-19. Now, this was way before we had any vaccinations available for it. So we know that that, that what happens is that when we reduce one disease, and that can be pneumonia from any cause, viruses, bacteria, even fungi can cause pneumonia. Lung disease begets other lung disease. So if a person has asthma, a person has COPD, a person has influenza, guess what? They're a sitting duck for worse COVID-19 outcomes. And the reverse is true. Each lung disease holds hands with worse outcomes with the next lung disease. So if you've got a lung problem, well, you're a sitting duck potentially for worse disease of any of these. So when you protect from one, you're protecting from the others, albeit indirectly at a minimum. So this is a good time. Let's put the plug in. It's important once you're on, once you're seeing your family doctor, once you're seeing your pharmacist, am I up to date on my pneumonia shot? There are a few shots people over 50 need. Quick recap, pneumonia vaccination. But Everybody you're, you're, over 65 can get that. The, just a minute. You, you don't need that more than once, though. Right. The pneumonia shot, Pneumovax 23, is given as a single dose. Now, some sources say it should be given as a booster, and five years after that, that should be an individual decision with your doctor. Like, a person should talk to their doctor about that. But once we're on the topic, it's not just lung diseases. It's also protection from shingles. The NACI guidelines, the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, everyone over 50 should be protected against shingles. And we have a vaccination called Shingrix reduces it by 97%. Total game changer. Takes a disease which is now a, a common disease without vaccination and turns it into a rare event. So these are things that once you're, once you're on board, just, just get all of the vaccines aligned. All adults should have one dose of pertussis vaccine. Remember that? The whooping What's going on there? Uh, John, so... Um, John? Hello? John, are you there? Hmm. Okay. Uh, we'll have to see what is up with John. I'm uh, third time lucky here. Really? Pardon? We just lost you for a minute. Oh, I can, yeah, I can hear you clearly. I'm not sure what happened there. Okay. So um, what uh, kind of uh, an uptake are you expecting in, in the next few weeks? Yeah, well, I'm I'm expecting a wave of traffic, and I mean, it, if you think of community pharmacies, uh, Libby, they've been a very, very busy uh, place. Our kind of throughout the pandemic, we've been, you know, a convenient and accessible uh, venue for healthcare. And you know, we've done community pharmacies in Ontario have done over four million COVID shots. I think ten million nationally, and we've become the destination for for vaccination. I think so. Uh, Last year, we did, uh, in Canada, 3.2 million 
I think flu shots in pharmacies, we're expecting quite a bit more than that. I think the awareness has gone up. So uh, my big message is use the scheduler, uh, get your appointment. We'll try to fit you in as walk-ins as best as we can, but I expect it's going to be very, very busy. I think, Larry, the other thing that we're doing a lot of now is, uh, you know, rapid antigen testing in pharmacies and, and collecting for a molecular PCR. So all this stuff is going on at the same time. So it's a, a little bit of a different place than it was, I think, last year and the year prior to that. So it'd be, uh, I think, ideal if we could kind of organize the traffic a little bit better and try to get everyone uh, vaccinated uh, in a systematic fashion. Well, uh, it was also because uh, it, the rule used to be that if you wanted the high dose, you had to get it in a doctor's office. So I'm assuming that will make a difference. Well, last year we gave high dose as well in community oh, pharmacies, but we didn't have much supply. I think if you were, we ran out pretty quick, right? Uh, I don't anticipate that. Based on what I have right now, we're in pretty good shape. So I think uh, uh, hopefully, I mean, last year we exhausted our supply of flu vaccine in literally two weeks. We were gone. And I think it was all the, the excitement around the, uh, COVID as well. I think we're in a much better position this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, Iris, uh, do you feel that way? I mean, you got, you said a third of what you were looking for in terms of we high dose. We requested 300 doses. This is for two doctors. We received 110 doses. It's a little bit early to commit to it right now, but because we're just trying to get through the backlog of individuals who had pre-ordered, whom we know need it. And it's interesting. We're, we're, we're also trying to emphasize, I can't help it. I'm a family doctor. So I got to, I got to put on the family doctor hat to remember to do the other things. Is this just purely about vaccination? Absolutely not. It's also about optimizing that mitigation effort, ensuring enough sleep, ensuring exercise, which we know reduces infections. It actually does help. All these things are interrelated. And, of course, maintaining that plant-based Mediterranean diet because these things interact one another to work as a whole to reduce the likelihood of getting sick. And I mean all-cause mortality, not just influenza. But, yes, we're on it. We're trying to you know, make sure the patients are aware that we have it. And we're just telling them, you don't have to come to your family doctor. It's, it's the first place you can get it is where you should get it. It's the first vaccine that you can get that you should take. You know, whether or not it's high dose, even if you're over 65, fine if it's high dose. Remember, the study is old that that 24% is improved on, that 24% improvement. That's based on a 2014 study. It's getting a little out of date. We hope that it's just as good. There was a later study showing that adjuvanted flu vaccinations for individuals over 65 are just as good as the high dose. So the messaging is don't wait, just get it sooner. That's where the benefit is. Having that vaccination, having that immunity on board, because it's going to take two weeks. And we, you know, hum let's face it, COVID-19 has been very humbling. We can't even predict two weeks from now. We're happy the numbers are low, but we've seen the numbers coming up quickly. We cannot make assumptions. We have to stay ahead of the curve. And John, do you think that people, you know, I've, I've heard lots of comments just the seasonal flu. I think people don't realize that every year uh, between two and 3,000 people actually die of seasonal flu and, and a much, much larger number become incapacitated and lose their independence. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you there. I think uh, many, many people underestimate kind of uh, the, the flu, particularly our younger patient population, and they don't understand kind of the risk they convey uh, to others, maybe the more uh, immunocompromised, the elderly, the younger patients. Uh, you know, if you don't get vaccinated, you may not get morbidly ill, but you could pass on uh, the virus to someone that, that can. And I think it's uh, uh, a great public health message to get as many people vaccinated as possible. But I do agree with you. So many patients confuse the, cold, uh, the flu with the common cold. So they'll, you know, get vaccinated and they'll tell me, well, Two weeks later, I had a runny nose and this, and uh, I got the flu anyways. I'm like, that's not the flu, you know? So the reality is if you get vaccinated and you get the flu, it's probably going to be a much, much attenuated uh, course of the flu. I have, you may I'm, not get the yeah. symptoms at all. I have to say that uh, I got the flu a few years back after being vaccinated, and uh, it was still pretty bad. I was off work for, I think, four or five days, 
uh, and it, it wasn't a common cold. No, yeah. I'm sure. And, and the, the good news story there, Libby, is you didn't end up in hospital or die, right? Well, so yeah. that's really what we're trying <laughs> to prevent with the vaccination. So you may still and, get some symptoms. And, the efficacy does uh, vary year to year of the vaccine, but the reality is it's going to uh, prevent most people from ending up in the hospital or dying, and that's really our ultimate goal. Now, here's the other thing, and I always get a few of these people calling, and they say, I had a bad reaction to a flu shot 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and then they describe something that may or may not have been related to the flu shot. What do you say to those people? Yeah, you got to take all that with a grain of salt. We've heard it all. I think every time I come on the air here or I do something else, my email gets inundated with, with weird exceptions to the rule, right? So the reality is the vast majority of patients that get vaccinated are going to do very well with the vaccine. The most they're going to get maybe is a little bit of uh, local arm pain or a low-grade kind of fever in, uh, for a few hours in the evening, and that all goes. That's the vast majority. And then you hear all these other scenarios, and, hey, uh, are there, is there a potential risk for severe reactions? Possibly. Very, very extremely rare. I've given this season alone, uh, Libby, in my pharmacies, we've given 20,000 vaccines, and I haven't seen one bad reaction, and that's my personal experience here, Right. Outside of the kind of local minor things, and this is specifically for COVID, but year over year with with flu as well, the vast number of patients do well. And I think we've got to take all these, you know, uh, you know, my brother, sister's husband, you know, got the flu vaccine twenty years ago and was paralyzed with a you know with a grain of salt. And you, but you do hear those stories. Uh, okay, uh, we are running out of time. Uh, Iris Gorfinkel, twenty seconds. The last word to you. Keep in mind that no vaccination is ever perfect. The flu vaccine on a good year will be 60% effective. So breakthrough infections can happen. Side effects, not to diss them at all, but they are pretty rare. We can expect local side effects, minor headache, muscle aches, malaise can happen for up to three days after. But generally speaking, it's my advice, get the vaccine. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, John Papasturgio and Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. We appreciate your time. Many thanks. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, allergies are on the rise. There's a new study on that. And I want to hear from you. Do you or people in your family have food allergies? How did you find out? What do you do about it? And do you think uh, that you get enough warning about ingredients that you can get a bad reaction? Uh, But most of all, we want to figure out why are allergies on the rise. So let me give the numbers out again before we go to break. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.